Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 1005. To kick off this week's show, Jay Jaffe and David Lorela continue their podcast tradition of discussing their Hall of Fame ballots together, and they welcome old friend Travis Sochik, author and senior baseball writer at The Score, to join them as he prepares to submit his first ballot. The trio attempt to navigate the PED issue, and who deserves a pass when baseball has a long, long history of cheating? We hear thoughts on players like Mark Burley, Andy Pettit, Carlos Beltran, Scott Rowland, Todd Helton, Andrew Jones, Bobby Abreu, Jeff Kent, and more. Jay, David, and Travis also discuss the concept of players tarnishing their hall chances by overextending their careers, and the philosophy of a large hall versus a small hall. I think each ballot has to be taken on its own, so I hate to say, well, I'm going to fill in 10 every year or be a smaller guy. But yeah, some of these cases, are you a smaller hall or a larger hall guy? And I think I'm in on two of the three on this particular bubble list, so I guess I'm not the largest hall, but a larger hall guy. Does that make sense? I'm a larger, but not, not large. Because you think about some, you know, the 80s. In the modern era, we have some underrepresented yes. eras. In, and I think we're at risk of maybe doing that again, where can make the case for some of these guys. And I agree that those eras were underrepresented. I don't want to be complicit in that for the 2000s and late 90s and some of these cases either. So I am weighing that too as I sit down to check some of these boxes. In the second half, Dan Zimborski and Michael Bauman got together on Wednesday to react to this whole Carlos Correa thing. The pair ponder where the Giants go from here, while the Mets are spending money like they know it's a social construct. Dan and Michael also talk about Star Trek and Old Bay and how Steve Cohen is making the other team owners look bad, as well as what Michael is most excited about after Correa signed with the Mets. Even as a, a Phillies fan who ought to be terrified by the prospect of Carlos Correa on the Mets infield for the next 12 years, after the 2017 World Baseball Classic, I developed like a near pathological need to see Carlos Correa play third base full time. And we're going to get it now. And I'm so happy that we're going to get to see this because I think he could be like l- legitimately one of the best third basemen you'll ever see defensively. But before we get to these segments, I must issue my weekly reminder for you to head on over to the store at Fangraphs.com. If you need any last-minute gift ideas for the baseball fan in your life, consider an ad-free Fangraphs membership. You can give blazing fast browsing speeds and the joy of supporting Fangraphs.com, helping us to create our leaderboards and articles and podcasts and everything we do. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Hello, this is Jay Jaffe for Fangraphs Audio. It's December, which means it's Hall of Fame season, and as the December 31st deadline nears for the BBWAA ballots, I'm here with my ballot trying to figure out exactly how I'm going to complete it, and I am not alone within the Fangraphs family. My colleague David Lorela gained the vote uh, at the same time I did. This will be his third ballot. And on this program, we're welcoming back a distinguished Fangraphs alum, Travis Sochik, who now writes for The Score. Travis is a first-time voter this year. So as we do, as I did with Eno Saris of The Athletic uh, a couple weeks back while we were at the winter meetings, I wanted to talk to Travis about being a first-time voter and about how he goes about filling his ballot, while also talking to David and discussing some of these players myself. So welcome to the show, Travis. It's great to be back on Fangraphs Audio. It's uh, it's it's been it's been a minute. I think Carson was a host last time I was on. So, yeah. oh my God, old yeah. regime. Yeah, old regime. Yes, <laughs> old old regime. And 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 David, welcome back. This is I think the third year we've done this. It is the third of hopefully many. Jay. All right. Well, uh, great to uphold the tradition here. All right, let's Travis. Talk to me for the, uh, a little bit here. Tell me, like, what what went through your mind that would you know when you realized this was going to be uh, your year to vote for the first time? <laughs> yeah, it carries uh, some weight and significance, right? You get that ballot in the mail with the Cooperstown postage address stamp, and it's probably <laughs> you know you have an compared to and most things you vote in, you have an overweight kind of impact on on the election result and right. uh, so it carries a little bit more uh uh significance or or importance so yeah it's it's a cool thing but it's also something i think people should take seriously because these are careers and these are the even the non-hall of it, these are the upper one percent of the one percenters and it means a lot to to everyone who gets in and but at the same time you want to uh keep the credibility of the hall of fame and and that in balance too so 
yeah, a lot of those thoughts are just kind of going around in my head and trying to be a, a fair voter and not right. screw it up and not be, you know, <laughs> get social media backlash too, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, do you know, the, the scrutiny that we get is an inevitable part of this. And, and I think we sort of do volunteer to put, put ourselves in the, in, in the line of fire by, by publishing our votes. But, you know, at, at this point, uh, the vast majority of our colleagues uh, within the BBWA do as well. So it's like, you know, somewhere around three quarters or so, 81.5% of all ballots were published last year, either before or after the election. So, you know, we're well within the uh, uh, majority here when, when we do something like this, although not everybody does uh, an explainer with a podcast or a column or whatever. I, you know, I know obviously this is, this has been, you know, a cornerstone of my, uh, of, of my writing for, you know, for now two decades here. I, when I get that notification from the, um, from the uh, Hall of Fame to make sure you've got your registration information updated. They send that during the playoffs. I like, I turned that around in like 30 seconds. <laughs> Cause I'm like, you know, don't let me forget this, you know, right. it's like, I'm, and then when they, you know, it's like each stage of it is like, okay, cool. They know I'm here. Okay. They know they, they've got the address, right? Let's, let's do this. So, but yeah, I think it's, I think it's good that you're, that you're, uh, you know, greeting it with the anticipation, but also the, the, the sense of responsibility. Yeah, Jay, let me jump in here and add real quickly that I think that making ballots public, and I think we most agree with that, well, the BBWA has not been successful in making it obligatory to do it. I noticed on social media the other day that a Hall of Fame voter did make his ballot public, and it was among the more controversial ones. He voted for one person. And statistically speaking, it was the third best Philadelphia Philly on the ballot. (laughs) And I'm not saying that to criticize the voter. I'm saying it actually to laud the voter for making public a ballot that there's going to be a lot of backlash. A lot of people, not a lot, there are too many voters who aren't willing to face backlash, even if their ballot might be more predictable or traditional. So, you know, kudos to a voter for doing something I and many might not agree with, but he was he was willing to say, hey, I did this. It's on me. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. I always I, I don't know. I have a general my general rule of thumb is if you've come to the come to the ballot, come away from the ballot thinking that if you've got that there's only one person worthy of your vote. Your process is almost certainly wrong. And like, <laughs> like, I don't know where you like. I mean, there's a you know, I think. But that, you know, it's my curse, try, and my wife can vouch for this, it's my curse to try to sort out a pattern and a logic to anything that crosses my path, you know, whether it's a Hall of Fame ballot or the way in which fast food order numbers are called to see, like, which, what's next, what's next, what's next. I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm relentless in trying to figure out patterns. And I want to, like, so how did you arrive at why Jimmy Rollins is the one guy on this ballot to deserve your vote? Like, what's... What's leading you there? You know, explain it. But, uh, you know, this guy did not really explain it. He just threw it out there. And I didn't really see fit to follow up because I'm not really, uh, I don't mean to, and I don't, I'm not going to name the voter's name. You can look it up if you want, uh, those of you listening at home. I'm, I'm you know, I, I, I say this on Twitter. I'm out of the business of critiquing individual ballots. You know, that's, uh, it's somebody else's job to defend it and whatever. I, you know, I'm critiquing the overall trends. But anyway. Uh, let's get back to this. So, Travis, I think the first thing when you, you know, I know the first thing when I look at the ballot, and I think one of the first things you have to confront when you're taking on this process is how to handle the candidates who have been linked to performance enhancing drugs. And, and I think every voter, you know, has, uh, has their own line and, you know, has done, you know, if you've been in the BBWA, you know, at least 10 years, you've confronted this issue on a number of fronts one way or another, but where do you stand on that and how does it have an impact on, on how you, you know, how you start filling up your ballot? Yeah, it's so, uh, I mean, it's unfortunate that you know, this is still given to the baseball writers to deal with, but uh, I'm going to vote for players linked to them. And I, I think it's, it's just such a mess. And I, the information's so imperfect about who used them, who didn't, who benefited, how much. I can't I don't know those answers. All I know is who performed well and how they performed amongst their peers. And that's how I'm going to vote. I don't even know if that's the right way to vote, but that's kind of my approach to it. So you're willing to vote then either, even for guys who were suspended? Uh, yes. 
Okay. I am. All right. I, I mean, I, look, I, I, I understand that line. I mean, I think I'm looking at uh, David's ballot, which he published on Twitter here last week, and he's got Manny Ramirez and Alex Rodriguez checked. So you're hardly alone in this. Both of those guys have been getting last year, I think it was about 29% for Manny, about 34% for A-Rod. So there is a, there, there is a distinct, you know, segment of the, of the voting population that, that does that. And I think, you know, it's not my problem. It's the game's problem. It's the hall's problem. Whatever is a reasonable tack to take because, you know, why do we have to be the cops? <laughs> right. I mean, I don't feel great about it. I just I, sure. It's just such a such a mess, and I think it's difficult to even even the players with suspensions. We still don't know who benefited, who did, who used, who didn't out of the whole pool. So, but some of these players are just, I think. Their Hall of Fame talents, with or without them, and probably before they ever, you know, before right. they ever were known to use them, they were elite performers. So uh, that's kind of where I stand. I don't even know if that's like the morally correct position or or what or what not. I think but. there are, you know, I think there are there are a number of, like I said, I think there are a number of ways to approach this. I don't think there's a right way or a wrong way. You know, if you're if you've got a coherent logic, I mean, I can understand somebody who says I'm not going to vote for any for anybody who is linked. My stance has been to distinguish between what happened before the testing era, you know, before testing came in uh, in 2004, and what happened after. So guys who have been suspended, I have not included on my ballot. Uh, that would include Manny and, and A-Rod this year. But Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens, you know, and, and, and uh, you know, other Balco guys, uh, Gary Sheffield in this case, I have voted for them uh, in the past. I, I voted for David Ortiz last year. So that's where I've drawn the line, and I know some voters have cited that position or, or stick to a similar one. David, have you ever wavered on on where you stand with this? Have you gone Travis's route and just uh, gone ahead with the suspended guys yourself? Well, I have gone with the suspended guys, as you know. I wavered, you know, back and forth and forth and sure. back numerous times before casting my first ever ballot, and then finally decided to bite the proverbial bullet and begrudgingly decide to give a pass to, you know, the players linked to PEDs for much the same reason that Travis just spoke of. I have been more prone to not give a pass to players who have had allegations of things like assault or spousal abuse. Sure. You know, initially somewhat controversial in sabermetric land, I voted for Omar Vizquel, but in my first ballot, I dropped him last year, and I'm not including him this year for that reason. You know, K-Rod is in the same boat. Right. To me, he maybe gets on my ballot, but I, I just can't get past some of the reports. You know, it's a line yeah. I, that should not be crossed. Yeah, I, I, I understand. I've, I've, um, I, I struggle with that. And, you know, I think uh, over the years, I have done the best I can to try to flesh out those aspects of the, of all of the candidates on the ballot. And I've even discovered, for example, this is, a, you know, he's no longer on this ballot, but Sammy Sosa had an early 90s uh, allegation of domestic abuse that, you know, disappeared from the news as quickly as it was reported. There was no, you know, no report of a legal settlement or anything like that. You know, Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, Manny Ramirez, Andrew Jones, Omar Vizquel, all those guys have been linked over the years. I have not used it as a disqualifier, but which doesn't make me feel great. But at the same time, you know, I like it's if they're on the ballot and if they're in good standing, you know, I don't know. I don't really know how much weight to give that aspect of it. And so I struggle with it. But I have, I have not to date used that as as a reason to dismiss a candidate. Yeah. And Jay, and, and Jay let me jump in here, too, and saying I have actually not used it as a black and white disqualifier. Yeah. To me, it is a decider if a player is, you know, a borderline. On the maybe, bubble. On the bubble would be the best way of putting yeah. it. K-Rod is a great example. If he was Mariano Rivera, maybe I am willing to look past that, but he is not Mariano Rivera. Okay. <laughs> Travis, where, where are you on this? Do you wish that we were given more guidance from the Hall or Major League Baseball about, you know, this is what the qualifications, this instance disqualifies you, whether it's steroids or domestic mm -hmm. uh, violence arrest. I mean, do you wish we had more firm criteria or should writers be the kind of moral policing aspect of, of the hall? Yeah, I, I, I don't I don't love being put in that position. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't either. Yeah, I'm not 
likely to vote for Omar or uh, or K Rod. And that's to David's point. If they were like the greatest, if they had all time elite performance at their position, it would it shouldn't make it. If that's your position, it really shouldn't make a difference, right? You should be disqualified. But at the same time, it would make it much harder for uh, for people to leave off the ballot. So I don't think I'll be. I'm not voting for Omar. I'll have to dig into K Rod a little more before I submit my ballot. He's kind of on the my bubble list. Right. But yeah, it certainly doesn't help his case. And again, it's uh, you just it feels uncomfortable marking a check mark next to someone's name with a, a serious past history like that. Yeah. So, well, okay, that brings us actually brings us to uh, the other first year candidate, the other prominent first year candidate on the ballot, Carlos Beltran, who, you know, his the big black mark against him is is his involvement in the uh, Astros 2017 illegal sign stealing scandal. So how do you how do you approach that one? Because it's it, it, to me, it's it's pretty close to unprecedented, uh, if not entirely unprecedented. I mean, certainly the the category of of illegal sign stealing it's unprecedented. But you know, we've we've seen voters grapple with, say, Gaylord Perry, and, you know, the spitballers, the other ball doctorers who have hit the ballot. Whitey Ford obviously excelled in the black arts uh, long long <laughs> long before Gaylord Perry was 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 on the scene. And uh, uh, Don Sutton's another who was uh, loved to have that uh, reputation uh, as, as a guy who said he'd wear a black and Decker belt to the mound if he could. So where do you, where, where are you, where are you on Beltron here? Uh, there's a lot of, <laughs> we're dealing with a lot of issues on this ballot since, since yeah. this was a non, I'm prone to vote for him on this ballot just because I think he's a deserving player and mm-hmm. he wasn't, you know, on the field doing this. So it's, it's another issue where, you know, it's, it feels it's a black mark for the game. It's for him. And I, I do think, you know, there's their personal reputations will always take a hit. Just, I feel like just because you're in the Hall of Fame, that doesn't mean we're not saying you did everything correctly and you're a great person. I think their you, your, your score, your reputation and score in society takes a hit. So I, I think he's been docked there. And But as a player at his peak, I mean, I think he's a deserving candidate. So I believe he will be on the yes line on my ballot, which I have not okay. completely, you know, made all final determinations on as of today. Yeah, I'm still trying to figure out where I landed here. And David, you landed on yes for Carlos Beltran. I right? did. I did, Jay. And one thing that influenced that actually was a book. I don't know if the two of you have read it. I'm sure a lot of listeners have, which is the Mark Armour and Daniel yeah. Levitt's book, Intentional Bulk. Yes, I believe yes. the title is what, you know, subtitled Baseball's Thin Line Between Innovation and Cheating, I think. Reading through that book, the amount of quote-unquote cheating in baseball, including sign stealing, dates way, way back and has been more sophisticated than I think a lot of people realize. Does that mean that people should do whatever they can to steal signs, you know, including electronically? Uh, absolutely not, but the precedent is... It's very long and deep. And honestly, that helped sway me to, you know what? I don't think Carlos Beltran really did much that others before him have not done. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, you know, I, I looked at Mark and and Dan's book as well. And it's good. It's good you bring that up because I meant to include that in, in, in my piece. And, and at least we're talking about it here. It's a great, it's a great little book. There are signs still, you know, there was, Sign stealing is as old, pretty practically as old as the National League, which means it goes back into the you know well into the 19th century. And there's buzzers by the turn of the century, buzzer systems. And you know, I was really struck by a, you know, a few years ago, some you know some of the 1951 Giants finally admitted to their own buzzer system. And instead of any kind of shame or remorse, they were like you know practically like yeah, hell yeah, we did it, ha ha ha. And you know, other than maybe sparing sparing a thought or or, or a nice word for Ralph Branca, who gave up the home run to Bobby Thompson, uh, the shot heard round the world, you know, and complimented the grace with which he carried, you know, his his role in history, they were unrepentant, you know, and and it just seems to me like, man, you know, I guess like it, you know, it's so it's water so far under the bridge. It's like why you know what you know what are you going to do about it anyway? You know, and Bobby Thompson claimed he did not have the pitch that he hit for a home run. I don't know if I believe that, but whatever. It's, it, you know, it's so far gone. I just, it feels weird to demand 
like something, you know, short of, you know, something on the level of a, you know, a, a, you know, confess and we'll drown you or confess, and we will, you know, or don't confess and we'll drown you type, you know, which situation, you know, for, Car- for Carlos Beltran when he was probably, you know, one of many people who was, you know, working with a, a very blurry line there at the time. So I don't know. I'm, like I said, I'm still chewing on this myself. Yeah. I mean, this this was his age 40 season, right? All the allegations yeah. are tied to him. So he yeah. wasn't, uh, he batted to, this is not to dismiss it and the impact it had. And uh, again, but it just really didn't impact his career that much unless we knew he was an expert sign stealer from his whole career. Well, like, his, I mean, he you was, know, he, you know it, I think there's, there's certainly information to support the fact that, you know, he was, he was great at reading pictures. I mean, like, his stolen base rate, his like elite stolen base rate. I think it's the highest in baseball history. At, like I think it's the 300, 300 attempt level. He knew what to look for in a pitcher, and like so, I don't doubt that he had the ability to see, say, you Darvish tipping or whatever. But he took that a step further, and there is, you know, he was on the Yankees in two thousand sixteen. You know, when they were, I think, uh, dealing with, you know, they they had done some video stuff more primitive than the trash can, you know, before all this stuff was made explicitly illegal. Um, so he pops up as kind of, uh, as, as being in the, you know, right place at the right time for forerunners of this, if not explicitly connected to it uh, in the athletics reporting of, of the road to the trash can saga. Um, I think I, <laughs> yeah. I think, yeah. I think I have that correct, but anyway, that's a lot of controversy. Uh, and I think we're all trying, we're all trying to deal with these guys as best we can. Let's move on to the um, different topic here. Pitching. How do you approach the pitchers on this ballot? Does anybody, you know, we're not, we're, we don't have any 300 game winners here. We don't have any guys who are obvious automatics. Where do you stand on, say, Mark Burley and Andy Pettit and uh, I guess uh, Billy Wagner as well, since we're talking about relievers here and we already addressed K-Rod? Oh, this is yeah, one of the things that struck me just first. I mean, I, I, I knew who was eligible, but just seeing the list on the, the single printed sheet of paper. It's like, I wish there was some easier, like, oh, dominant ace for 10 years, you know, kid, all these, there's just some, uh, there's some fringy cases. Like Pettit to me is very, I feel like he falls short for me. And mm-hmm. are we letting, I think Wagner is just so dominant in his role. I think he's a yes, but are we letting too many relievers? I see that being kind of a storyline out there. Are we letting too many relievers right. in the hall? And Burley, I just I, he doesn't strike me as a guy either. So I don't, where do you stand on these these guys, David Jay? I have kept all these guys off. I have kept Burley and Pettit off my ballot. I took a uh, I revised Jaws to be more workload sensitive, which I think brings modern guys who weren't routinely throwing 300 innings a year closer to the line because I think they're sort of penalized by you know the inclusion of all these you know 19th century dead ball era guys in the set. But they both strike me as kind of maybe twenty fifth percentile type guys in the in the Hall of Fame, and I'm just not I'm just not convinced that they are strong enough. Whereas I look at say CC Sabathia, who you know is is a little short in in, in what I'm calling S jaws, but much closer. Uh, you know, dominant Cy Young, big postseason stuff too, and, and Pettit does have the postseason stuff for him, which I you know I could I mean historically there are lots of guys in that sort of like you know, below average relative to Hall of Famers, but they had two big World Series and that was, you know, in the in the age before television and that got them in the hall. I'm thinking guys like Chief Bender and Lefty Gomez and and guys who were towards the lower end of, of, of Jaws, but they're in there and I can see a justification for it, but I haven't gotten there with them. Whereas Billy Wagner, on the other end of things, I regard as the single best reliever outside the hall. That's what you know. That's what my revised version of of Jaws for the relievers says. And if you know, while we've got the floodgates have sort of opened over the last few years, I don't see anybody else on the horizon, with the possible exception of K. Rod, who could get in there because I see Craig Kimbrell, Kenley Jansen, Aroldis Chapman, all falling short of even the bar that these two guys on the ballot reached because. They don't have, they're not going to have the longevity. I mean, like, you know, Chapman lost his job as a closer. Kenley briefly lost his job as a closer, but resurfaced and had a pretty solid season, got another contract out of it. I'm not terribly optimistic for how he's going to do in Boston. 
Craig Kimbrell didn't even make it onto the Dodgers playoff roster. You know, these guys are not going to, are you know, are, are going to fall a rung short of where Billy Wagner is. And that's influenced my thinking on Wagner here. And it's starting to seep into my, my evaluation of Rodriguez. I came very close to voting for Andy Pettit on this ballot. Uh-huh. I am unabashedly a, you know, large ballot guy. You know, I said that, stated that many times. So right. I filled out, you know, checkmark 10 names each year. Pettit, when I looked, started looking at leaderboards, was surprised to find out that he has more war than Glavin, Sabathia, Granke, whose career is just about over. Seemingly, maybe he'll go forever. You know, more than, than Halliday, more than David Cohn. Some of that is longevity, of course, but if you can pitch for a long time and keep putting up positive war, you're pretty darn good. So it is possible that Pettit, if he stays on the ballot, is going to get my vote next year. Okay. Yeah, he just, if I'm thinking about it as kind of one standard deviation away from the kind of Hall of Fame, the, the 50th. 50th percentile in the middle of that bell curve. I just feel like he's just on the outside of that. And I, if that kind of makes sense, when you look at the war, yeah. war seven, the jaws, he's just kind of right at that borderline in some of those. Yeah. So I could see, I could see him making his way in. And to David's point, I could see any vote being justified, but from he just, just falls short of those, some of those measurables. Right. But of course, as Jay was, was alluding to, you know, exactly who are you compare, comparing Pettit to? He and Burley are pitching in a generation where the numbers are going to look different. So, you know, you cannot compare Pettit and Burley to, you know, Walter Johnson or Bob Gibson or, you know, you can go even closer to that. Times have changed. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah. But even as, yeah, his ERA plus, I, there's guys with poor numbers in the class, but is 16, what is he, 16% better than league average for his career? I just, I don't know. To me, it's borderline, but that's a good point, David and, and Jay. Yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad Pettit, I'm glad Pettit and I'm, and I'm hopeful Burley persists on the ballot because I, I'm, I'm happy to keep thinking about this. I, I've not closed the door on voting for either of these guys. And I think if there were enough traction for them, I don't think I would be a holdout. You know, I have a great affection for Andy Pettit's career because, you know, my, my time in New York, I've had, uh, you know, partial season ticket passage to the Yankees. I have looked, <laughs> there was, when Andy Pettit was with the Astros and there was that, that epic, uh, playoff game, uh, against the Braves. And I think it turned out to be an elimination game. I flipped on the TV and I was like, I've seen that butt before. And it was Andy Pettit <laughs> pitching in relief because I, how many, how many innings have I watched Andy Pettit throw for the Yankees? I'd like, I've watched, I've looked at the back of Andy Pettit and the back of Roger Clemens for that matter more times than I would prefer to think about. <laughs> Those two big horses' asses. And Pettit is not a perfect example for this, I don't think. But I think people should sometimes be more careful when they look at, you know, a cumulative, like a career ERA plus or an OPS plus and realize that, wait, if you take like the core years or maybe the best eight or 10 years, obviously Jaws does this. Some of these numbers are lower. Guys maybe played a little too long or took a while to get rolling. You know, I'm just taking a quick look at Pettit. I don't think you can apply that to Pettit so much. See, well, like one, one, 177 ERA plus, 156, 148, 132, 129. He had some elite years. But yeah. then, then you get the mediocrity that evens that out. Well, okay. And do you penalize guys for playing for maybe too long? Is that fair? There are certainly guys for that. I agree with you. Andy Pettit came out of retirement and put up a 148 ERA plus in 12 starts, and then a 107 at age 41. That's not that's not hanging on too long. That is a guy who's better than league average at age 41. Could certainly have gotten another contract out of that. And you know he missed a year because he retired. He had some injuries in there too. Andy Pettit has one season where he had a 97 ERA plus. That's as bad as it ever got for him. And that's still that's a and that was a 200 inning season in 2008. This, I mean, like he was not, he's not the poster boy for hanging on too long. You can go back and look at the 300 game winners that, you know, that we grew up watching. Steve Carlton. Now there's a who hung on too long, you know, with six ERAs of six 
or whatever. I don't think you can say that about Andy Pettit. I think Andy Pettit got about as much out of his career as, as anybody, and I, I wouldn't accuse him of hanging of hanging on too long. No, I agree. I agree completely, Jay. I, you know, I did add the caveat that he's not a great example. Yeah, okay, but it's, but it's uh, more. That's fair. You know, uh, you can you know go the opposite way too. Somebody who's not in the Hall of Fame, which you're, you're familiar with, a lot of listeners maybe aren't. You know, Indian Bob Johnson, I think, played for twelve or thirteen years. I don't think he ever had an OPS plus under right. about one twenty five or one thirty, but he didn't play long enough, you know, and didn't hit over three hundred. But he is was certainly better than Kirby Puckett. So right. Right, right. Yeah, we're talking about Indian Bob Johnson was a guy who played for the uh, Philadelphia A's and then the Senators and then the Red Sox from 1933 to 1945. And he spent his formative years, his early career in the Pacific Coast League, which at that point was was almost major league caliber. And he didn't come to the majors until age 27 and played through age 39, but was a perennial all-star pretty much for a while. Finished with a 139 OPS plus. I think I have him in my book. You know, the guy could hit, but he had a short career. There are certainly other, certainly guys much worse than him in the Hall of Fame. And if, a, you know, if, a, if, a, if an error committee put him on the ballot, I would have to think long and hard about whether I'd support him. But I think I'd probably lean yes, although I don't think that he's, he's a must have in the Hall. But yes, there, there are guys, there are guys like that too. Let's move on here to talk about the guys who have gained traction in recent years, thinking about Scott Rowland, Todd Helton. And Andrew Jones here. What are you, where where are you guys on 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 those guys? I'm in on all three of those guys, and uh-huh. yeah, I think they all meet a lot of the bars. I on metrics, sustained performance, elite peaks. So yeah, I'm I'm in on all those guys. All right, David, you you've got them here, and I think I'm I for me they meet the jaws requirements here. They're or, or they're right you know right around the line, and I think among the strongest candidates on this ballot here when you. When you get to it here, so maybe we don't need to belabor this part of it. No, we don't. I'll jump in though, and looking at the publicly available ballots, somebody who is doing far more poorly than he should is Bobby Abreu. Yes, that's a that's a good one. That's actually the next guy I was going to talk about. <laughs> right, and we and we have been voting for him. He's sort of in the Dwight Evans uh, category to me right. as a guy who is a far better player than public perception, and he, you know, he won't fall off the ballot this year. But he is really plummeting, which is on a less stacked ballot this year. I am surprised. Yeah, he's never really captured the voters' imaginations, I don't think. And, you know, he's got 10% of those. He had 10% of the public ballot last year and came in at 8.6% overall. And so far this year, he's gotten, I guess, almost 18% of the public ballots. But we're talking about 39 ballots published so far. So it's, that's not really a, a great indicator of a big step forward. I think he's a little bit short of the line for right fielders. I mean, like Dwight Evans being a perfect example of, of somebody I would put I would put in before Abreu. He is ahead of Gary Sheffield on Jaws, though, and, and I voted for Sheffield. I think Sheffield's defensive numbers are almost hyperbolic in terms of the extent to which they're outliers because other systems have a much more kinder assessments of them. So I think about Abreu in that context and comparable to Vlad Guerrero's Jaws, too, and I'm not you know, and I, I didn't vote. I would, didn't have Vlad on my virtual ballot at the time because he was low on jaws and because ballot space was more at a premium. But if Vlad and if Sheffield, if if I'm considering those guys Hall of Famers, I have to consider Bobby Abreu, you know, right in their clasps because statistically he's there. He was underappreciated in his in his career. I think only three All Star appearances. I think that's kind of a shame. So, Travis, do you have thoughts on him and whether to include or, or leave him <laughs> yeah. off? Yeah, Abreu and Pettit are two of the more interesting guys on the ballot, I think, uh, in making cases. And maybe I'm just a sucker for on-base percentage and strike zone, contr- strike zone I control. I mean, those are, those are good things. We've learned, we've learned to appreciate those things more over the years here, uh, especially during our professional lifetimes yeah. and, and you know, maybe are you know, what preceded them. So, I mean, you can make a case he's one of the best 24 top, maybe top 20 corner outfielders, right fielders in baseball history. So, I'm actually leaning towards a yes on Abreu as I go through my final process here. But, um, yeah. if you want to look at Jaws, he's within that kind of if you want to use a Z score <laughs> approach to Jaws, yeah. I always start with Jaws, and I think he's right there. and kind of on that borderline of hall worthiness, I believe. And you can look at precedents and make a case he, he doesn't deserve to be in. And But I don't know. 
he's a guy who should be appreciated more as by as more and more younger voters you would come in too. So I, yeah. I'm a little surprised he's not picking up some more support with the the electorate appreciating the analytic analytical kind of underpinning performance numbers and that sort of thing. But tell me why yeah, he shouldn't I, be it. Tell me why he. No, shouldn't I have be. I have him. I have him. Uh, I, you know, I've had him on my ballots. I think. You know, while the Jaws average, you know, I refer to that as a standard and have, you know, generally, uh, almost uniformly always advocated for those guys' election. It's kind of the soft, the soft line for me is 50 Jaws. If you're at 50 Jaws or better, you're probably good enough for the Hawk because there's certainly guys who are much lower than that in. And, and Abreu's at 50.9 Jaws. He's right below Dave Winfield in the right field rankings, like 0.2 points below, uh, and 0.6 points above Guerrero. So yeah, I like he's in the zone there. And I think, you know, Z score, that's another good way of looking at it. I think he's, he, he's right within that. Uh, and right fielders tend to skew a little bit heavily in terms of the standard. So because you've got Babe Ruth, Hank Aaron, Stan Musial, Mel Ott, and Frank Robinson, all with a hundred career war or more. Right, right. Making for a very top heavy ranking there. So I think we're in a great agreement there. Here's one. Um, and I think we can we can uh, probably wrap this up here. The final year candidate on the ballot uh, is is Jeff Kent. I have not voted for him before because he doesn't fare well in Jaws. But uh, uh, David, I see that you included him on your ballot. And uh, do you want to take us through where where you are on him? Kent was the player that I most wanted to get on last year and did not have room for. So yes, I did vote for him. You just mentioned, Jay, you know, uh, Bobby Abreu, where he ranks, you know, just above this player, that player. That is, of course, can be a sticky situation. You know, if X is in, Y should be in. Well, Jeff Kent ranks right in front, as far as war goes, right in front of Bobby Doerr, Billy Herman, and Tony Lazeri, who are all in. So you want to be careful, you know, with that idea. But Kent, I mean, the most home runs for a second baseman, he had a 10-year prime with a 133 WRC+. plus. He had just short of 1,000 extra base hits, which there are, I don't have the number in front of me. Maybe 40 guys in history have more. And that is, uh, you know, those are counting stats. But again, if you play long enough to build up 980-something extra base hits, you are pretty good for a long time. So yes, Jeff Kent is on my ballot this year, and I think deservingly. Yeah. Okay. I would say I, I would point out that when you compare him in Jaws, the na- some of the guys you named are guys who missed time due to war, due to, due, due to World War II service. So that kind of suppresses their stats. I'm always trying to be a little bit lenient and careful when I make those comparisons. But yeah, I think I, I'm, I'm surprised that Jeff Kent is only 21st among second basemen in Jaws, and it's really it's it's the it's the defense that kind of defense. And I think it's a 350 on base, 350 ish on base percentage, 356 from a time when offense was, was offensive levels were very high. So I'm, I've kept him off. Uh, I will look at that one more time. But Travis, where are you on, on Kent? Maybe he should probably be in the, I guess he's kind of in that Pettit Abreu bucket where I think he's one of the more interesting cases here. And he's also an MVP. An MVP winner. Should that matter yeah. if you were, if you, I think an MVP award should have some weight too. At least I personally put it there if the writers I, thought. I, it's certainly fair to consider. It's, yeah. you know, it's, it's the, as John Thorne, the official historian of Major League Baseball often says, start with, was he famous? <laughs> um, and I think winning an MVP award and being the, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, the high-profile guy that he was. I think Jeff Kent certainly meets that threshold. There yeah, and four plenty top of guys 10. in the Hall of Fame who are like who are like Jeff Kent in that regard. So yeah, I, I mean, I think it's a it's a fair starting point. His career was so unusual too, where after at age twenty eight, he hadn't really accomplished much, and then he has four top ten MVP finishes. Right. So yeah, he's an unusual case. I do think, you know, if you're thinking about the game's best middle infielders of the early two thousands, he. Uh, he's right there. Like sometimes I use that litmus test. Is he? If you just think about, remember watching. I hate to use the anecdotal, but watch him play. Was this guy? Did you think of him as great when he played, and someone who was a threat to their lineups, pitchers? And I think Kent crosses a lot of those. But then you look at, and he falls. But he falls short by other measures too. So he's another one that I am still working through. I haven't made a final. Uh, and you've made some good arguments too, David. So. I need to think about him a little more before I officially mark him off. 
Yeah, I have one. I have one final thought before we close here, and it's a philosophical question for Travis that occurred to me early on in our conversation here. You know, I have said that I'm a, a big hall guy. Travis mentions things like, well, Abreu, Pettit, Kent, you know, all bucketed together, you know, sort of borderline. Ultimately, Travis, do you think you're going to be a big hall guy or do you think you're going to be a guy who is more likely to check mark four or five boxes most years? <laughs> I, maybe somewhere in between, I think. The all-time playing population that has become Hall of Fame Hall of Famers is is it two percent or is it less? It's about it... one somewhere between one and two, closer to okay. one. It's about like okay. like one point three or one point four. Okay, so yeah, I mean, I try to think about some of those precedents too, like what kind of standards have been set, and I think you know that not even two percent. So we're dealing with one and a half. I think each ballot has to be taken on its own. So I hate to say, well, I'm going to fill in ten every year or be a smaller guy, but yeah, some of these cases, are you a smaller hall or a larger hall guy? And I think I'm in on two of the three on this particular bubble list. So I guess I'm not the largest hall, but a larger hall guy. Does that make sense? I'm a larger, but not not largest hall. Because you think about some, you know, the 80s. In the modern era, we have some underrepresented eras. And I think we're at risk of maybe doing that again, where we can make the case for some of these guys. And I agree that those eras were underrepresented. I don't want to be complicit in that for the 2000s and late 90s in some of these cases either. So I am weighing that too as I sit down to check some of these boxes. When you say, you know, Jeff, Jeff Kent, in terms of what he accomplished before, you know, before, he, like that he hadn't accomplished much before he was 28. Well, here's here's an interesting split. Jeff Kent, through his age 29 season, this is 1997, had a 106 career OPS plus from age 30 through age 40, 131. So like, Suddenly change into a you know legitimate middle of the lineup threat, five time All Star with um, those MVP finishes that you are the MVP votes that you that you, uh, uh, that you mentioned there. So very interesting and, and unique career in that regard. All right, guys. Well, that's obviously a lot of food for thought. And David, you've sent your ballot off. It's available in the tracker. Which those of you listening, if you want to find it, the easiest way to remember it is just type in tracker.fyi into your browser, and and it will uh, it will lead you to. Uh, the great tracker kept by uh, Ryan Thibodeau and, and friends. And uh, Travis, we're eagerly awaiting your final decisions here. I will have my own ballot explainer at Fangraphs on December 29th. That's uh, Thursday of the uh, week between Christmas and New Year's, uh, which our site is going to be mostly dark, running best of 2022 content. Guys, I want to thank you both for for spending some time talking about this stuff with me and for doing your best to come up with defensible Hall of Fame ballots, because I think that's very (laughs) important to the process. So, Travis, great that you could drop in and uh, rejoin the fold here for a few minutes. Yeah, thanks, Jay, and thanks for all the work you've done and bringing a much better process, I think, with with your foundational work on this, because I know it's a big aid to me as a first-time voter, and I feel like I'm less searching in the dark when I at least have some benchmarks like JAWS to look at and, and start with. So, yeah, it's really meaningful. All right. I appreciate that. Uh, David, always great to talk to you about this stuff here. And uh, the link that we have going back to getting into the BBWA together at at Baseball Prospectus and carrying it forward here at Fangraphs is great. So happy to renew this tradition. And thanks for joining us. Thanks, Jay. And uh, thanks, everybody, for listening to Fangraphs Audio. You have reached part to do of the Fangraphs Audio Podcast. Following up on some good Hall of Fame talk, I'm Dan Zaborski, and I'm joined by Michael J. Bow Bow Man. Hello. Hi. Yeah, this is the you know the rubber chicken hour segment of the podcast after the smart people talked. Yeah, this is where you're rewarded for listening to the whole thing because first you got the meat and now you get the candy. <laughs> But you know who's, who doesn't feel like they're getting candy? San Francisco Giants fans. Because last week they signed Carlos Correa, and now they've not. And that is a pretty big change to their roster. Any initial thoughts? Well, when they said they were postponing the press conference because of testers, they were waiting on test results, I thought, oh, he 
probably tested positive for COVID before he was going to fly out or something. They have to push it back or do it on Zoom or something. And uh, no, it's it's worse than that, I'm afraid, because they just tore up the entire contract. The Giants were apparently dragging their heels and Scott Boris, the infinitely patient and uh, gracious Scott Boris, decided to, you know, tell him to S or get off the pot. And, and now he's bound for New York, where I get to... I, this is... Even as a a Phillies fan who ought to be terrified by the prospect of Carlos Correa on the Mets infield for the next 12 years, after the 2017 World Baseball Classic, I developed like a near pathological need to see Carlos Correa play third base full time. And we're going to get it now. And I'm so happy that we're going to get to see this because I think he could be like legitimately one of the best third basemen you'll ever see defensively. I mean, Zips already had him as a plus seven shortstop uh, defensively. And while he's not going to probably get the full positional adjustment, kind of the whole concept where a plus 10 shortstop doesn't really become a plus 27 left fielder, he should be really good there. And that is a really nice left side of the infield. I do kind of wonder, I mean, I really hope that the Mets have very different medical personnel than they had during the Wilpon era, because there were some (laughs) interesting diagnoses there. I mean... It could turn out that he lost a foot in an accident, a trolley accident or something in weeks recent, and the Mets diagnosed it as a pulled hamstring or something along those lines. So hopefully they have qualified doctors who look not as trolley accident. You know, they got light rail in Minneapolis. So yeah, you would hope that, that he would learn how to navigate those things by now. But you see, you know how to use a light rail, like an old time trolley. The cable car. That's true. I yeah. I can't say I've ever actually been on an old timey cable car as extensive as my light rail experience has been. Like walking through traffic, like in a busy intersection, everyone's kind of going slow. You kind of know how cars are going to react. But I don't know how a stagecoach is going to react. I don't know the stopping distance of a stagecoach, whether the horse gets in a trampley mood. So I think that some kind of horrible disfiguring injury in baseball it should have kind of a very classic unfortunate cause what means of conveyance do you think they use in san francisco i'm starting to worry that your conception of san francisco is like based on jack london novels it's you know they do have like cars and stuff there now i mean i haven't spent a ton of time there I, i imagine that they kind of have an electric hovercraft and some trolleys and they have these fancy electric cars that run hills yeah and hills so i imagine they have like gliders where you swoop down the hill and you you get the updraft for the next hill san francisco is the matte painting of a starfleet academy that they use for star trek the next generation that's what it looks like so is it like the deep space nine episode where they were all kind of aliens pretending to be am i going to get eaten by aliens in san francisco that's just what i want to know well from what i understand about the tech industry I mean, there were multiple episodes of Star Trek where there there are aliens pretending to be Starfleet Command in San Francisco because there's the Voyager episode, but also there's the one where changelings infiltrate Starfleet Academy in the the two-parter. Oh, yeah, the one where they gave all the civil liberties up. I remember that now. Uh, And it had, oh, what was that guy's name? I think he was on Falcon Crest. Admiral Layton. I don't I don't remember the actor's name, but every time I've seen him in something else, like he he played a senator on the West Wing. I was like, hey, that's Admiral Layton. He tried to do a coup in Star Trek. Uh, now, the question is, where do the Giants go from here? Because you they can't make a fake Carlos Correa. That's an alien that would eat the opposing team. So Brandon Crawford's back at shortstop and third base looks like emoji shrug. Uh... I mean, roster resource says Wilmer Flores. I mean, doesn't that feel pretty bad Uh, because it's not. Well, it it, doesn't feel that bad when you look at what the other internal options are. (laughs) Yeah, it's I think the problem here is this is one of those frustrating cases in which we don't actually know the whole story yet. We don't know if it was a small thing that the Giants were hesitant on. And you can kind of understand like Boris being urgent because the, the truth of the matter is, if you tell me someone has a briefcase with my 300 million dollars in it. I'm going to take that very, very urgently, and I'm going to be really obnoxious about you giving me that suitcase. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say, oh, you just just give it to me when I see you next week for Monday Night Football. I, I'm going to want that suitcase over the weekend. Yeah, and you look at the history of failed physicals. Like, there's, was it was it Dexter Fowler with the Orioles? And he turned out to be fine, but there was also, you know, if you want to look at 
mid 2010s Astros number one overall picks like the Astros in a way that looked really shady at the time backed out of a deal with Brady Aiken and they turned out to have been right to do so with one one hundredth of the money at stake here. Uh, so I don't know. It's one of those things. I, I just don't know what could possibly be wrong with a, a guy who played uh, just looking it up like 136 games last year was really good and played 148 games the year before that and was really good played 58 out of 60 during the pandemic plus the the playoff run like there's scary back stuff but that's in the past and you know the leg injury from the minor leagues that's in the past too I just don't know what they possibly could have shown up that would outweigh the past three years of looking healthy looking like one of the best shortstops in baseball I mean, Jacob DeGrom passed the physical with the Rangers. Yeah. Uh, and he's been injured recently. Uh, so it, it does make you wonder if there's some kind of degenerative condition, like, you know, the Mike Trout spine antics, uh, but maybe not quite as bad. But I, I, I want to know the story. I don't like not knowing the story. And that, that, that frustrates me. For for the Mets, though, this they they have when they a lot of teams will say, like, we're going to be aggressive in free agency. <laughs> and like like the Orioles said, it's all uphill from here, all up the ramp. Like, OK, well, now we've got Adam Frazier. So spending can mean a lot of different things. And the Mets, to his credit, Co- Steve Cohen, the new owner, has spent what pretty much what he said he was going to. I think even more than that. Yeah. Now. Let's say the Mets are disappointing. How quickly do you think that this commitment to spending and continuing to spend will change? Because if say they go like 81 and 81, can you really see him spending, you know, 500 million in payroll next year with a a $150 million tax on top of that? It just makes you wonder where the end is in the worst case scenario, because it is the Mets and there's a kind of a natural feeling about the worst case scenario. I think that's fair. Where I'm worried about, I'm not worried about 81 and 81. I think if that happens, there's got to be some sort of cataclysm or, you know, injury crisis that makes it easily explainable. And then, you know, you look at the Correa deals going on forever, Nimmo deals going on forever, Lindor, but like some of the, the other contracts, Verlander, like that's coming off the books after two years. So if that turns out to be, you know, Justin Verlander turns 40 and immediately his arm falls off or something, they can get out of that pretty quickly. I think it'll take a couple seasons of like unmitigated disaster for Steve Cohen to to pull the pull the plug. Because here's the thing, like, is there a person on earth who's more aware of how fake money is than Steve Cohen? <laughs> I think the Wilpons might after uh, they were involved in things. No, no, sorry. I I didn't mean like encounter fake money. Like, I mean, like they're aware that the like the concept of of money and and currency, like all of this is a social construct. And uh, if you're rich enough, you can bend the this is a problem the Wilpons had. They weren't actually rich enough to bend the rules of physics to their will. And Steve Cohen is. And hence the list of the tax bills going to be bigger than the payroll of like seven or eight different major league, major league teams, which how embarrassing is that for or how embarrassing should that be for teams like the Pirates and the the Guardians who made the playoffs last year, who won a playoff round last year? I just I just don't get it. I mean, it, it should be very embarrassing. And for baseball as a whole, because one of the things that people forget is that money in revenue sharing is supposed to mm-hmm. be used for player development, either on-field or player development costs to make a better on-field product. And the problem with this, of course, is that the commissioner, a certain Mr. Rob Manfred, does not really seem to be aware of this clause in any meaningful sense, because I think we'd probably agree that there's been little to zero far closer to zero effort to actually enforce this among these teams that get more in revenue sharing than their entire payroll in a few sometimes. It's one of the reasons why uh, the Players Association fought for that assumption of abuse to be that that dollar figure where they where the teams have the burden of proof of showing how they use the money, why they've wanted to raise that threshold considerably. And they, they were successful in that. But it feels like this is a real almost collective bargaining and agreement moment because players are looking at this and saying hey there was there was money in baseball clearly i think that you're going to see a larger gulf between a larger market and owners who want to spend like cohen and the smaller market teams 
And you also have a weird situation in which a lot of teams be, might be beyond the luxury tax threshold and might push later on for a much larger cap to that and cause a little internal owner battle. And they did kind of stay relatively united in the lockout. So I'm kind of curious what long-term consequences they're going to be. Yeah, I this is, I, I think, part of the reason why Part of the reason why there was some resistance to letting Steve Cohen buy the Mets, apart from like, you know, all these people are all everybody who owns a baseball team is ethically a criminal. But Steve Cohen, like literally, you know, was uh, ran afoul of federal regulation. So like that's like not the kind of person that you want to let into the the country club, but also that he was going to like they're the sort of pigs get fat hogs get slaughtered type of thing where he's going to ruin everybody else's good time by showing how much money there actually is in baseball by doing what every owner should be doing, which is to bring as much of his financial might as possible to improving the on-field product. And I think there's a, a huge gap between big market teams and small market teams. I don't see a problem with that. I think that because baseball is structured in such a way that like the extra, I'm not doing the math now, uh, like 20, what is it? 27, 28 million or whatever for a year for Carlos Correa isn't actually going to improve the chances of the Mets winning the World Series that much. Like, that expenditure doesn't get you that many more wins or that many more playoff wins at this end of the curve. Like, it's much more impactful when you're trying to go from 80 wins to 90 wins, for instance. And as long as that's possible, then, you know, you could still compete. You could still get into the playoffs. You could still be in with the shout. The way that, you know, as much as I always rag on Cleveland, they're usually in it. They're playing meaningful baseball every year, which I think is like the bare minimum that fans should expect as much as I'm frustrated that, that they don't do more to try to, you know, push the boat out and try to be more competitive with teams like the Astros and Yankees in the American League. But you could build a competitive team without spending $300 million. And that's going to be true you know, until inflation makes $300 million, you know, 50 years from now, what $30 million is now. So I don't really see the conflict apart from Steve Cohen is exposing the illusion that baseball teams and owners, that they say they don't have money to spend when in fact they do. Now, where do the Giants go from here? Because that's kind of a con an awkward question because it's not like you, you've put a bid down on a house and someone has outbid you and you no longer have the house. It's like this was one of the last houses this was the available. Last house. Yeah. Because people are always like, well, this player isn't a perfect fit. But you really get perfect fits. You can't go to the Carlos Correa store and get another Carlos Correa or the Carlos Correa equivalent of a picture or a capture. You you have what's out there. And now there's not really much left out there. That's the the problem. And that's, you know, that's why these guys are worth $30 million a year or more, because you can't just go out and get another Carlos Correa. I mean, this is like the timing on this couldn't be worse for the Giants, because in the time that they've been dithering over this, like, yeah, I'm not a giant, so to speak, Dansby Swanson fan, but like, you know, he's an okay use of, if you're not going to spend $350 million on Correa, you spend 170, 180 on Swanson, like, at least you have an all-star level player to show for it. And, like, in the time that this has taken to resolve itself, that's completely dried up. Like, am I missing something? Like, unless you're going to go out and get, like, Nathan Eovaldi and Gene Segura, like, who who else is out there to really fill this hole? Like, it's, it's just a, a really tough, and that's, Part of the reason why I don't get this from the Giants' perspective is even if you think that there's something suspect about Correa's medicals, like the downside of losing him at this point when there's not really an alternative out there on the free agent market is huge. And it makes me wonder, because as you say, it's not a good situation for the Giants, is just how bad was this? And then we get back to the part where we don't really know that yet. I'm sure eventually it'll leak out because everything leaks out. Uh, like, you know, the top secret COVID list which was always very easy to leak out because there was only one reason players would have unexplained absences that yeah. they couldn't talk about. But any replacement at this point is going to naturally be compared to to Correa. I mean, you could get Segura and Ovaldi, but then, you know, everyone's going to know that they are the guys who are there instead of Correa. I kind of want to take a job with like MLB just so I can kind of see how many jerseys they might have sold in the last week about Correa. If those are on sale, I haven't even checked. But now I'm wondering, is that if you had a Correa jersey with the Giants now, is that 
cool collector's item or disastrous purchase? I think that depends on how many jerseys you buy. Like if if you're someone who like, you know, has a collection of jerseys, then yeah, I think that's a cool collector's jersey. But like if you could afford to spend 200 bucks on a jersey like once every five years and this is the time that you like this is the time you pull the trigger that's got to be a if nothing else for that reason like i would be surprised if i i haven't checked either but i would be surprised if they had had any credit merch on sale before the deal was official just to not explicitly to avoid stuff like this but if he's not officially on the giants then can they sell giants correa stuff so Good maybe point. the issue is not the jersey maybe the issue is like you know spending 35 bucks on a bootleg Carlos Correa t-shirt from like a local artist, in which case, you know, support local artists. And then you could be ironic about it. We love irony in, in San Francisco, don't we? Now, if you were a Dodgers fan, maybe you do get a Giants Correa jersey made just to be kind of a jerk about the whole thing. I think that's funny. But where do you wear it as a Dodger fan? You know, yeah, that's the, the problem. Of- you don't know if you're being uh, on the level or I, I guess you'd, you'd have to have a sign Next to you says, like, yeah, I'm being This sarcastic. is ironic. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not serious. I'm doing a bit. And, like, if somebody else ever does develop a sign, that, like, big flashing neon sign you can wear that says, I'm doing a bit. Don't worry about it. Please let me know because I need one. Just, you know, for how I walk around day to day. But that's a risky proposition. Yeah, you'd have to, like, wear, like, a, a fedora. You would need to look like you're being very ironic about it. Maybe ride around on a fixed gear bicycle. I think that's something to, now that I think about it, do the Dodgers even have a mascot? I don't know. I always thought their hot dogs were kind of the mascot, the Dodger dogs. <laughs> like, if this happened to, I don't know, if this had gone the other way, for instance, if Correa had signed with the Mets, failed a physical, and gone to the Giants, like, the Philly Fanatic or, or a Blooper would, like, absolutely come out with a Carlos Correa, with, like, a dummy in a Carlos Correa Mets jersey. So that's and done some sort of prop comedy with it. And that that would be good. See, there's a simplicity of being an Orioles fan because the mascot makes the most sense of any team. They're the Baltimore Orioles, and the mascot is the Oriole bird, a big Oriole bird. I don't know. I think you're missing an opportunity to have your mascot be a big anthropomorphic can of Old Bay. Ooh, I love Old Bay. Everybody I know from Baltimore loves Old Bay. It's like... Do you not like Old Bay? No, no I don't. Uh, and like, you know, where I grew like I consider myself as being from the, the like the greater crab fry belt, but it's it's just too much. I don't for me. I don't think you're allowed to have crab. I think that your crabs are now taken away from you if you Am I not allowed to have me specifically? My brothers love Old Bay, but I just I can't do it. I mean, it's technically, uh one of the misconceptions about uh steamed crabs is you generally don't get steamed crabs with Old Bay on them. J.O. number two is the crab spice that you'll actually find on steamed crabs when you're in the Baltimore area because Old Bay, first, it's very ex- it's rather expensive because McCormick charges an arm and a leg for it. And it's it's too fine and it doesn't really stick to crabs. So they use the coarser like tubs of J.O. seasoning. It's a company in Hailthorpe, Maryland. That is the Maryland fact for people who did not want to hear any of that. Fact. I'll be honest, I was laboring under that misconception, so I'm glad to have been put straight. So you have Old Bay on your table, and you have the Old Bay crab chips, and you have fries with Old Bay and vinegar, but mm-hmm. it's J.O. number two on the steamed crabs. Wow. See, I've I've shattered nobody's worlds today. That's interesting. Like, Dan, what do you think what what do you think bears do when they hibernate? This is a, a fact that that I came across. I think bears sleep and occasionally wake up because they want to take a pot of honey from somewhere. Yeah, I discovered. So, like, I think I knew somewhere in the recesses of my mind that bears don't, like, eat a lot during the fall and then literally fall asleep for three months during the winter. But, like, nobody ever really explained to me what they do instead. And apparently, like, they get up from time to time. It's like a hibernation is not a a literal, like, hibernation, like, interstellar. It's just like a reduced body function, basically. So you do sleep a lot, but you do actually like get up. And I was wondering about that. Like, you know, if you eat enough to to store up fat to live off of for three months, like, don't you have to take a crap? And do you just like do that in your in your sleep? I guess this is less of a problem for, for bears than it would be for humans who famously don't hibernate. But 
This is like a this is a re- revelation on the level of finding out that they don't actually put Old Bay on steam crabs. See, now I, I do kind of want to try hibernation because I do have the girthy midsection that would enable me to live a while. Oh, you and me both. I moved like I moved way up north and I was like, oh, I need to, to put on a protective layer of blubber here like a like a seal. And it, it you know, it it's good for the winter. Less yeah, that, so for the that's summer. what I tell myself. It's I, to protect I, it's, from predators. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a manatee. It keeps me warm in the water <laughs> because we were giving uh, I, well, I was giving our our, uh, our editor, Dylan Higgins here hard time because he lives on the West Coast with the weird cold ocean. Yeah, I don't like it. And that's it's a man. Dylan's a little guy. He wouldn't survive long in those cold waters. He needs to manatee it up. <laughs> On that note, we are almost out of time. So Fangraphs will be hibernating next week, living off of our stored fat uh, and celebrating the holidays. Oh, what a metaphor. That's great. That's just great work by you. And building up new fat because these holiday uh, foods, it's not usually diet food it's usually very fatty high carb food because that's how you celebrate by making your death come a little closer and that's what family and holidays are all about so to you and yours have a great holiday michael and to the and rest try of not to fixate on impending oblivion yes and when you're sleeping please wake up and go to the bathroom you're a human you're not a bear be cognizant of others This has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you to Travis Sachik for joining us, and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the program, consider recommending it to a friend or two. It helps us out. After you have visited the Fangraphs.com shop and considered an ad-free membership as a last-minute gift, or maybe some swag as a gift for yourself, don't forget to also sign up for the Fangraphs newsletter. It is the best way to keep up on all the cool stuff we have going on, free to your inbox. There will be no new Fangraphs Audio next week, as we will be on holiday. I urge you to still visit Fangraphs.com, however, as we will be running some of our favorite pieces from throughout the year. We hope you have a wonderful and safe holiday season. Take care of each other out there, and we'll talk to you in the new year.